Hey guys, this is Ian Happ from the Chicago Cubs. I'm excited to announce that my show, The Compound, is now part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Join me and my teammates, Dakota Meckes and Zach Short. This week, we welcome Cubs first baseman, World Series champion, Anthony Rizzo to The Compound. Check it out. Subscribe. The Compound on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Thursday edition of the OBR Newswire podcast. Before we get started, I'm going to talk to you again about our friends at betonline.ag. Make sure you are getting over to betonline.ag. Sports games are kicking back up, right? You know NASCAR's back, golf is back, UFC is back. You can bet on those things, future prop bets. All of those are available. You also still have the online poker blackjack available 24-7. Get there, use the promo code BLUEWIRE, one word. Get that uh, welcome bonus that is unique to the folks at betonline.ag. Easy for you to access quickly. That's betonline.ag, your online wagering solution. So we have a great guest on tonight. Brent Sobleski, writes at the Bleach Report, is a big part of us going forward here at the OBR. Fantastic draft content, among many other things. If you have not asked him questions and asked the insiders, he's always going to be there to give you great answers. The water cooler, so many other places. Um, you know, our jack-of-all-trades here, man. Sobo, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, as always. And this time we didn't have to worry about a power outage, or if you're in Cleveland, a Bauer outage. But in, <laughs> you don't realize how much you miss that stuff until it's gone. And then, in my case, for two and a half days, so getting any type of work completed or <laughs> just keeping up with my responsibilities was quite difficult. So it's nice to hear from you again, my friend, and getting back on path. Yeah, I know. I, we didn't deal with the outage you did. You told me two and a half days, and I was like, I don't know how we'd survive that. I mean, that's that's just, unless you got family close by, you got to go somewhere off to a hotel. Or I, I did not envy your situation, so I'm glad you guys got through it and everyone's okay. But but I uh, I was blown away that it could last that long. That's a tough, that's a tough stretch. But I'm, I'm here to not talk about the power situation in Ohio. We are here to talk about the Browns football and particularly your OBR draft report, which was posted yesterday as we're recording this on uh, on Wednesday night here, but this is going up Thursday. It's the OBR draft report, a changing landscape, some really interesting stuff in here. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you about Nick Chubb's future. This has been discussed at length. I've had many different people on this podcast, and it's come up. It'll continue to come up as we see Dalvin Cook holding out. And I just retweeted a, uh, a, a Nick Olson posted all of Alexander Madison's 10-plus yard runs in the various schemes the Vikings use. And I'm like, man, Dalvin Cook, man, I wouldn't hold out all too long or uh, – you know that spot's going to be gone because that guy can play. Listen, I I don't I don't know where the future of running back money goes. Dalvin Cook's situation is going to be interesting to monitor in terms of what Nick Chubb is looking at as it sits today. Kind of projecting the future. Where are you at with it? Well, it's interesting because when I first started thinking about this situation prior to the potential of a Dalvin Cook or Joe Mixon holding out, which is another name that will be in that discussion as well. I didn't think there would be any opportunity for Nick Chubb to be a long-term Cleveland Brown based on the current regime. You know, you look at where Chubb is, he will be entering uh, after his third year of his rookie deal. So that window will open for him to re-sign. You don't need to necessarily do so. And then you have 
a chance to franchise him. So you essentially have two more years, two more controllable years to use another baseball analogy after the upcoming season. And at that point, you can look at it as you've gotten the most out of him already early in his career at a discounted price, and then you can move on and invest in the position once again. Now, with that stating that, I started to think to myself, well, let's look at where Andrew Barry it comes from. And the automatic assumption that most people, at least Browns fans, make, and potentially incorrectly so, is that he is a Saucy Brown disciple. Yes, he worked for Saucy Brown. There's no argument with that whatsoever. But at the same time, he spent a very important year in one of the most well-run organizations in football with the Philadelphia Eagles. And one of the things I pointed out in, in this column is that Philadelphia, more than most teams actually, really value running backs. Now, they don't necessarily invest big money in running backs. As such, they draft and cultivate and develop their running back rotation and getting that stable filled with numerous guys that can be effective within the running game. And so thinking that, knowing the guardrails that we do when it comes to Paul DePodesta and the way he wants this organization to be run as the chief strategy officer, you identify and pay early. And if you have an opportunity with Nick Chubb to take a below market value deal, which I think would be on the table for a young man like Nick Chubb, who isn't necessarily looking to capitalize and maximize his monetary value in the short term. To me, that would open up a window where Cleveland could potentially sign him beyond those controllable years. Will that happen? I don't know yet. And it's going to be determined by what happens with players like Dalvin Cook, like Joe Mixon. Next year, you'll start having those same negotiation uh, uh, discussions about Saquon Barkley and Sony Michelle as well. So based on where this market goes, how the, the ebb and flow of these of these negotiations could really determine whether Chubb stays with the team long-term or not. I will go 60-40 right now that he's not in Cleveland beyond those two controllable years. But in this case, I think there's more value to him than just saying running back is devalued and we should move on. I'm with you. I think it gets a little interesting when you look at how teams handle the ones that are truly elite, right? Like how how teams end up paying them or, or whether they regret it or whatever. It does seem like, for the most part, teams invest in the guys who are at the top of their position in the running back circle. Like they find a way to give them money. Now, Le'Veon Bell, you could argue the other side of the coin. But for the most part, the recent trend has been paying those guys and um, you know the pay early idea could come into play, like you said. So, well, I don't, I don't know where it goes. Um, like you, and hopefully most other Browns fans, you, 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 you at least have three years of this guy, and I'm just going to really enjoy him. And hopefully, he blows up the way we think he will in the next few years in this system. And it's just going to be really fun to watch. And if, uh, if, if the success moniker follows the team, I think it'll, it'll be really fascinating to see who they pay and how they pay them. And especially Nick Chubb, considering the, uh, the circle around running backs and, and all of that stuff. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be a lively time for Twitter debates when that time comes. It'll just be a healthy environment on Brown's Twitter. So we'll look forward to that. The next part I have. Well, Jake, real oh, quick, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you don't mind. Yeah. If you don't mind, just to your point about investing in certain top shelf running backs, I want I want to correlate that with who is doing the signing. So if you look at 
let's just look at the top five to six running backs right now in overall total value contractually. Ezekiel Elliott, Jerry Jones, Christian McCaffrey, Marty Herney, Le'Veon Bell. That was Mike McCagnan, not Joe Douglas, who left Philadelphia for that position. David Johnson, Steve Kime, Saquon Barkley. You have the, uh, excuse me, Dave Gettleman who is the general manager for the Giants. And then Leonard Fournette, who was a Tom Coughlin decision. Now, I will say this with tongue-in-cheek. Not the most cutting-edge Any of those guys <laughs> come across as cutting-edge general managers based on modern football operations. No, man, it's not. It really isn't. That's why I think the Browns, who will, who will be the first – Right, the first forward-thinking franchise. We we think this group, Evan, you know, Andrew Barry and, and company is is going to be like you said, um, a group that is, we hope, trend-setting and forward-thinking and analytically driven. And this will be the first time that maybe a, an old-school-ish type of GM um, will not have to make that decision, and that is why it will be particularly interesting. That's a great point to bring up, and one that I don't think many people do bring up me included, just a minute ago. So that's good stuff. We're going to switch to the Iowa uh, interview here. We had an interview called this the Cover 5 section. So five questions that you get with whatever guest uh, you will have on, which will be great guests over time. The first one was fantastic. Listen, I asked Sobo how to say this coach's name off the air. I probably have forgot. It's the offensive line coach at Iowa, Tim Tim Polisek. Polisek? Very good, very good. All right, I'll take it. That's good enough for me. They're they're keen uh, at Iowa there on the outside zone and the stretch concept that the Browns will bring into play under Stefanski. It will be their staple play, not their only run game play. They will run a lot of different varieties, but it is their staple. Now, this interview does not obviously involve the Browns having drafted Tristan Wirfs, but there is great information in this uh, quick section of five questions um, about the, the types of players that fit what they're looking for and how that might be end up being translatable to the Browns. So give me, uh, you know, not me necessarily, because I've read it, but the listeners here, so, so sort of your quick takeaways from this interview you had. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to Coach Polasek is, well, I, I had a previous relationship with him dating back to his time as offensive coordinator at North Dakota State. He was the play caller when Carson Wentz was there. And so he has a larger viewpoint when it comes to offensive scheming than just being a good old-fashioned offensive line coach and anyone who's ever played or been around the game knows exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to offensive line coaches and how some of them act so looking at it I thought to myself and this is something I've been a fan of the Iowa offense and a lot of people probably threw up in their mouth a little bit just by me stating that because they've never been a high-octane spread system under Kirk Ferentz. This is a system that borrowed from basically Mike Shanahan from day one, you know, when he became the head coach in, what was it, 2000, 2001. And they have had that zone-heavy scheme as the basis throughout, all the way to this day. And Knowing Coach Polisek and him going in there and trying to get an, uh, just an understanding, um, I mean, I'm sure it had been nice to go into the more nuts and bolts of things, but at the same time, an overview of what he's trying to teach his young men and how it applies to the next level. And one of the things that he, he actually discussed with me, and it's not in the article, so a little inside glimpse here, is they spent time all this offseason taking what they already have and trying to potentially implement some of the things they saw from the San Francisco 49ers from the other Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan. And so I knew 
I now know they've done ex- extensive studies on the two back sets that San Francisco was utilizing last year, how they took advantage of George Kittle, you know, uh, an Iowa grad, ironically. And so this is the way I'm looking at it is just to get little peeks into into what you can expect from Coach Stefanski's system, because you have to realize the the coaching tree and how it came down through the ranks. When you go with a Mike Shanahan and the Godfather zone blocking Alex Gibbs, who is one considered, if not the one of greatest offensive line coaches of all time, and then it works to Gary Kubiak, who was a protege under Mike Shanahan, who in, in turn hires Kyle Shanahan, who in turn uh, becomes the San Francisco head coach, where Gary Kubiak goes to Minnesota, and who does he and who does he mentor? Kevin Stefanski, who's now the head coach of Cleveland Browns. You have to know this history to understand how this system has proliferated through the NFL. And I did, by the way, Jake, ask specifically about Stefanski's offense and if they had studied it, but they had not. So unfortunately, I didn't have any inside knowledge of what they were looking at from that perspective. But at the same time. I guess if you're going to study the outside zone, the team to do it right now is San Francisco because of the success that they've had in recent history. Yeah, and, and and certainly there's others, right? Sean McVay, among many others, that have that have run it well when they've had the the right stable of of players around. But yeah, you're right. San Francisco is certainly the uh, the hotbed of that that offensive structure. And it's, it, it really is, and and they rewarded Kyle Han- Shanahan accordingly for. Um, you know his. And what what was interesting to me is like, is although San Francisco's staple is the outside zone as things that come from it. When I was writing up uh, some of those misconceptions of the offense, is that San Francisco's very diverse in run game attack approach. Like they they ran a high volume of ISO inside zone um, counter trap, uh, all those gap schemes. They ran a high volume of those, and, and really Stefanski did not run anywhere near that volume, so I'll be interested to see if he tweaks things and how much how much of his play calling, and I've mentioned this before, but how much of his play calling or decisions he was making were tied into uh, the head coach putting his foot down about some things, right? Their high volume of second down and long run rate, that sort of stuff where they were trying to rely on their defense and you know, we don't know. We, we we had an idea of what we thought Freddie Kitchens was going to be based on his eight-game audition, and then it was completely different when something else lands in his lap. And it's like, will Stefanski have a lot of similarities between his time in Minnesota to being a head coach now and, and dealing with his own staff and all of that? So that part I find interesting, Sobo, is, is sort of like the Browns seem to transition so often, man, like – like they they can't seem to keep a coordinator in place for multiple seasons, so that we as as the people who study them can get a great feel for what they love to do. I would just love it if Joe Woods and Stefanski stuck around for a while, so we could really start to to pin down what these guys like to do and sort of like see where they're deviating from their norm. You know what I mean? Well, that's really the the crux of this entire conversation. When you reach out to people that's been in the system that understand it. They're so much further ahead. And using Kyle Shanahan's example, well, one, he was basically born into running the system. But, you know, professionally, he's been running it since 2006. Or if you go to when he was offensive coordinator with Houston Texans, he took over in 2008. So you're talking 12 straight years that he's been running a variation of his dad's offense. And so he can continue to put those wrinkles in year after year after year after year. And so when you have... You have a collegiate program that's run the same system, the same basis, 
they're still looking to him because they're looking at what they can incorporate, the little wrinkles that they can utilize off and on. And that's what's really interesting about it because Kevin Stefanski, for as talented as I think he can be as a head coach, and the one year he was a play caller, it's that it's just that, one year. He essentially learned all the language and the system itself last year. <laughs> so yeah. now we'll, we'll have to see how he progresses with the implementation and from that point, how it starts to blossom as an overall system under his under his supervision. And that's really the biggest difference when you're discussing this from a program point of view from the San Francisco 49ers, or in, in my case recently with Coach Poldisek in Iowa. They've been doing it basically for oh, two decades in Iowa. So the way they're looking at it is different. And one of the things – I'll give you a great example that we were talking uh, outside of the interview is that – he talks about he I, looking at Tristan Wirfs and I and I'm sure you remember this during the pre-draft process about how people were always commenting on Wirfs balance at the point of attack and it, and I found out because as I wrote in the breakdown of uh, Alaric Johnson or excuse me Jackson because I found that he was playing over his toes a lot and for those who don't know playing over your toes for offensive linemen essentially you're top heavy your weight's forward you're not keeping a good base and, and, and really driving your feet through the or through the ground and, and be able to keep your feet flat. You know, you don't want to be on your toes and firing the pistons like all those old old school offensive line coaches. He told me the reason behind that is because they're they're taught to be aggressive off the snap. And that's including their pass sets, Jake. He he I, when I question Jackson's quickness out of out of his forty five degrees initial kick step he said that they don't necessarily teach that they're not teaching them to get vertical they're teaching them to be aggressive out of the snap and that's so that's a variation in how they're employing their pass protections that's different than what you would see at the professional level yeah i think that the browns started to do a little of that the toward the end of last year sort of jump setting or or, or punch set real quick to fl- to sort of flatten out the pocket i think that that's the big difference is is you know, Mayfield at Oklahoma played in flat pockets. He often had he operated in space because those tackles had that ability to uh, to sort of be aggressive off the snap. Like you said, now that's completely different. When I watched Minnesota last year, who had short drops and and their tackles were run up field tackles. They turned, they forty five, and they pushed defensive ends high upside. And Kirk Cousins stood in the pocket and made throws from the pocket, which is a big thing I need to see from Baker Mayfield is sitting on three-step drops because I think I'm pretty sure when I researched this and asked some folks at Pro Football Focus that the Vikings had the third, I think the third shortest drop depth in the league last year. So I don't know how that shapes up this year because I'm not sure that that's something that Baker is totally comfortable with. He's going to have to be comfortable with it in some to some extent because you're going to have to do that stuff. But, uh, you know, there can be changes that have been made. These guys are watching film. They're doing the same, same things we're doing just at a – uh, 1,000 million whatever degree of, of better analysis, and they're looking at it and saying, you know, what do we have to do for this quarterback to get it right? This is what we did for Kirk. What do we have to do for Baker? All that stuff's into play. So I think that that will especially be interesting. I know we went off on a couple different tangents there, but those are two points that that um, that I want to talk about because I think that it's going to be particularly interesting to see how uh, Cleveland shapes that offensive line and how you know the the pass sets end up looking, and then. 
to what Stefanski's offense ends up ultimately looking like. Is it, is it a carbon copy of his Minnesota days running just offense, or do things tweak as maybe he lets Alex Van Pelt have a bigger voice and maybe he takes a step back to focus on the collective picture? That stuff is always fascinating to me. We deal with it far too much, right? We've had too many head coaches that we've just been able to just just view this stuff. Would like It'd be nice to just get a head coach that has been here for a while who were like, okay, this is his structure, this is what he does. That's the goal. I think that's the end goal here. It always is the goal, right? But you can actually see see for the first time the cohesion and an angle like that plays out. So I'm excited about that, Sobo. Well, it's important, too, to understand the team that you're watching. I, I Look, I understand not everyone is into the, the little nuances of the game. Like like some of us who, who have watched it forever, Jake played at the collegiate level, I coached at the collegiate level. So things like that strike us and we get excited about it because – you start to develop an understanding of what not just the players, but the coaches are looking at and looking for in certain positions. So to use utilize an example, when you have those the capability to implement a bigger swath of jump sets when it comes to pass protection, now now juxtapose that to the offseason acquisitions. When you look at Jack Conklin, Jack Conklin and his strengths as a player. If you're asking him the vertical set, you're going to have a really, really long day when it comes to pass protect. That's not his game. He is a he is an athletic run blocker, and if his ability to get into blocks quickly really plays to his advantage. And the same thing with Jedrick Wills. If you, now Jedrick has a beautiful 45 degree step out of his out of his uh, set initially, and he gets into it very quickly. But that quickness allows him to get on top of players and really dominate them. Right off the snap, and see. So when you look at the way their capabilities and how that translates to the offensive system, it starts to allow you to understand that there's maybe a plan in place for once, and that's where the excitement should originate. Yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be pretty exciting. Uh, well, I guess it's it's not exciting for everybody. Um, this is probably something you you and I will want one of the select few paying attention to this stuff, but. You know, the little nuances are what win football games on Sunday, right? That cohesion no one's stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. We're talking about past set angles 20, 20 minutes into this podcast. So good stuff. That That's probably a sign we got to wrap up, my friend. I appreciate you joining me. All right, guys, we will be back uh, tomorrow. We'll have Film Room Friday with John Stephenson. We'll take a look at Mac Wilson's Film Room, chat about him, chat about this linebacker group, and uh, who knows where it'll go. Maybe it'll go out in the weeds again. So we appreciate you guys. We will catch you next time. Go Browns.